Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Exodus, the third chapter, verses 1 to 15. Let's listen for a word from God. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, a priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Havites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have seen also how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, (laughs) Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this, my title for all generations. The word of the Lord. I'll miss having Graham here to to give him the hard reading (laughs) uh, on Sundays. That was that. A lot of names in there. Well done. Um, And I really can't uh, overstate the importance uh, and the significance and the impact 
of Graham being in this ministry and part of our church family uh, in the last few years, couple years. So very grateful. Um, uh, it's on my mind and in my heart. Our second reading this morning, it comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. It's a very famous moment in the Synoptic Gospels account of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is Matthew's version of the moment when Jesus defines what it means to be Messiah or Christ. Just in fact, just before this text, uh, Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they all kind of throw out some answers. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then we go into the following verses, beginning with the 21st verse of the 16th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to the church. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man this morning. And always, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I was tempted to start this sermon this morning with the words, the word, sometimes, but as, as I thought about it, I've decided to upgrade it, almost like a flight. You know, coach, you upgraded maybe. It's never happened to me. Well, actually, it happened to me once uh, on a mission trip. In fact, Laura Phillips is on that flight. I got upgraded to first class, but it was a short flight and not really... I didn't really get a chance to enjoy it like I would have liked to. Um, I'm going to upgrade sometimes to almost all the time. When you think about it, almost all the time when you've got everything in your life arranged the way you want it, life throws you a curveball. A change of direction or an obstacle suddenly appears in your path. A change of plans, of direction, a curveball so drastic that you do not know what to do next. You don't know how to go forward. You have no idea. In fact, you may not even want to go forward if it's that devastating, a change in your plans. Has that ever happened to you? They call it life, by the way. Has life ever happened to you? You know the saying, we make plans and God laughs. We, human beings, want to experience life as a two-step process, where step one is you work and you plan and you pray 
and you work and you plan and you pray a little bit more and you get everything set up just the way you want it and then you try to avoid step two at all costs, everything you can do. Or pretend that that change of direction, that change in plans, that surprise, that diagnosis, that layoff, that loss will never happen to you. It only happens to other people. That's called putting your head in the sand and being in a river in Egypt, denial, right? One of my favorite family stories that illustrates that is back in 1967 when we were living in Italy. I was a little boy. My father had been spending about 15 years flying airplanes for the U.S. Air Force. Airplanes fly, as you know, way up at 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 feet. He didn't fly jets, so not 30,000 feet, but he was way up there. And the Air Force gave him orders to go to Vietnam and fly helicopters right at the tip-tops of the trees, a lot closer to the guns. And my dad said, thinking this would help, um, I don't fly helicopters. And the United States Air Force said, you do now. And that's what he did. We all start off with plans that we feel pretty comfortable with. Or if something does go wrong in life, we try to get ourselves back on track as quickly as we can. And then we think and we assume that from then on it's all going to go to plan, that we've gotten past the hard part or we've avoided the pitfalls and the hard part and that everything is going to unfold smoothly and beautifully. And the thing is, we know it's not true, but we convince ourselves of this over and over and over again. And inevitably, hence my almost all the time, or maybe even all the time, comes that disappointment, that devastation, that unwanted change in plans, that breakup of a relationship, that illness, the fire, the loss, the death. And then, as I said earlier, we're stuck. We are completely at a loss as to how to proceed because the plan is out the window. A doctor says to her patient, I'm glad you came in for a check checkup because I've got some good news and some bad news for you. Which would you want to hear first? The patient says, um, tell me the good news first. And the doctor says, okay, the good news is you are not a hypochondriac. You didn't like that one? I got another one. Uh, a doctor says to his patient, George, I've got some good news and some bad news. George says, give me the good news. The doctor says, they're going to name a disease after you. A comedian by the name of Rick, Rick Mercer tells a story about being booked at a big corporate event. Anybody who speaks in public knows what this is like. Uh, something like this. This big corporate event, he was the featured speaker. It can be kind of fun for the employees to have a comedian come out. But just before Rick Mercer, the comedian, comes on stage, the CEO, unplanned, unscheduled, walks onto the stage, grabs the microphone, and announces that the company is going to be restructuring, and half the room, half the people in the room right now will not be working here next year. And then the CEO says, and now, ladies and gentlemen, funny man Rick Mercer. It's on the agenda, it's on the program, but it's not going to work. We make plans and God laughs. We try to stay and keep everything smooth in that first step of life, but step two always comes. The interruption, the devastation, the change. 
A friend of mine named Jeff, after we graduated from high school, joined the Army, and it was a huge thing. Jeff was selected into the elite Army Rangers, right? Army Rangers are the elite airborne light infantry unit that's deployed all over the world where the fighting is the hottest, where it's really important. And it made sense. Jeff was smart. He was courageous. He was an amazing football player and wrestler. He's about 6'2", 215. Nobody messed with Jeff. It sounded great. We had a hero in the making. We were all so proud, so excited. But when he came home on his first uh, furlough after about, I don't know, six, seven months, Jeff told us about all the things they did. They jumped out of airplanes into the Panama Canal and had to swim like miles. They'd do all these things. But the one he really wanted to tell us about was when he was in the first day of parachute school for the new rangers. The cream of the crop, the best in all the US Army were lined up in one place learning how to jump out of an airplane. But they did it on a tower, about a 40 foot high tower, the initial early, early jump training. Um, they would get to the top of that tower and the jump sergeant would say, go, and off they'd go. First day, Jeff, who was you know pretty competitive, one of the better early recruits had qualified to be third in line to jump, and he couldn't wait. He was so excited. When the sergeant yelled, go to the first guy, that young man jumped off the platform, the safety line malfunctioned, and he broke his ankle. So they called it off for the day. Got to get that fixed. Next day, Jeff's second in line. They line up on the, on the ladder up to the top of the tower. Sergeant says, to the first guy, gives him the order. Okay, jump. The second, the guy who's now first in line, jumps. Safety line malfunctions again, ankle broken. The next day, Jeff was first in line. And about a year later, Jeff was home teaching high school. Didn't work out. Good news, bad news. We think we know how things are gonna go. It never does go that way. Good step one. And then we do everything in our power to avoid that tough, hard, unplanned, discombobulating, devastating step two, that un unexpected, unpleasant second step, and yet it always comes. And here's the thing about Christianity. Jesus tells us to do something a little different than that step one, try to avoid step two formula that most of us uh, used to live our own lives. Jesus says, lean in to the hard part, that difficult second step, the sad part, the devastating part, the painful part, the vulnerable part. Lean into the part you didn't want and did everything you could to avoid. Once it comes, walk in on your own will and accord because our Lord promises us there is a third step waiting for us if we're willing to look for it, expect it, and trust that it's there. Jesus and his disciples in our Matthew passage are at Caesarea Philippi. Good news is everywhere. Things are going according to plan. They're going better than any of the disciples could have imagined they could go. His ministry and their ministry together at this point in Matthew's story have been a stunning success. Crowds pressed on them everywhere they went. They tried to avoid the crowds. The crowds kept following them. This would have been a perfect time to hand out stewardship pledge cards. A lot of enthusiasm. People reached out just to touch 
his garments as he walked by, let alone listen to any word that came out of his mouth. This attractive young teacher from Nazareth, whose message in their minds and in their interpretation held all this promise for them. The disciples themselves were caught up in the excitement of it. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Remember, they just met him, right? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered enthusiastically, speaking for the rest of them, saying, you are the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, the representative of God. It was one of the most dramatic moments in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples, the whole story. Everything was coming together beautifully. The poor would be fed. The Romans, the oppressive Romans, the military occupation power would be tossed out. And then Jesus changes the subject. He actually introduces step two and says, the crowds, these crowds who are cheering my name and giving you the best seats at football games and uh, you know, treating you like you really matter and are really important, these crowds will turn against me and you. And I am going to be crucified, which is a slow and agonizing death. And I will suffer terribly before I die. But I'm going to die. And then on the third day, I'm going to be raised. And the disciples, just like you and like me, have no idea what he's talking about. Not only that, they don't like what he's saying. Jesus is introducing a topic and a future that they don't want any part of. And Simon Peter, it's kind of amazing, pulls Jesus aside. He just called him the Messiah, right? And Matthew says Simon Peter speaks to Jesus in the tone of a rebuke. Wait a minute. I thought you were the one who was finally going to get us over the top. Forbid it, Lord, is what Matthew says Peter says to him. Forbid it, Lord, that these things should happen to you. And let's remember, it's really important, Peter loved Jesus. Peter had put his whole heart and soul and mind into Jesus and what he perceived as Jesus' agenda. The last thing he wanted was for his master to suffer, let alone be killed. And Jesus makes it clear what he thinks of what Peter has to say. It's pretty harsh. You think of him as kind of a loving, nice guy, this Jesus. He can get a little mad sometimes when it came down to it. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This isn't about what you want. This isn't about how you want life to be. This is about how life is. And then Jesus tells his disciples that there are more than two steps to life, more than two steps to, abund to abundant life and living. Right here, it may be the most important text in any of the Gospels, maybe the whole New Testament, and for Christians, the entire Bible. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must do like I do, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Because whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. It's counterintuitive. 
Doesn't make any sense, but this is how it is. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me is going to find it. Whoever loses their life for me is going to find their life. Whoever wants to be my disciple. He's not talking here about going to church, by the way. I don't think he is. Let's be honest. He's not even talking about being religious. I think we've got to face that. He's talking about people, whoever they are, whose heart is tuned to God, even if they don't have a name for God. People who want to be in God's presence, who want to live the life that somehow they sense they were born from God to live, this abundant life that God, we believe, makes possible for us and for the world because of that table, because of what it represents, the story it takes us into again and again. The abundant life that God has made all of us, created all of us to live. A disciple is not a churchgoer. A disciple is a learner. That's the definition of the word. Someone who stays close to a teacher, who wants to absorb everything that teacher has to teach them, and someone who expects something out of it. That's going to church is just the first step in being a disciple. Here's what I mean. I may have told this story before, I can't remember. My first semester in seminary, I took the most boring class I'd ever taken in my life, and I've taken some boring ones. I was made to take, it was a requirement, Christian education. The teacher of that class, William Bean Kennedy, talked real slow. He was from North Carolina. I had to fight sleep off every time I was in that class. It was my first semester in seminary. At the same time, though, I was working in my first church. I'd never been in it. I didn't know churches were open Monday through Saturday until I got to seminary. I didn't know. Um, so I joined the church, and I was working as an intern in a church. And I was assigned fifth grade Sunday school and the young adult class. In other words, I was assigned to lead Christian education. The next semester of that same boring class, it was the most exciting class I had ever taken in my life in my life. Same teacher, same boring, slow, kind of North Carolina draw, drawl, but guess what? He had information and experience that I knew I needed. And I, I went from being someone sitting in the chair to a disciple, so to speak. Whoever wants to be my disciple might be the most important phrase in our text today. It may even be the most important phrase in the entire New Testament. And we kind of miss that because of the next part, which is so dramatic. You've got to suffer and deny yourself and take up your cross. But let's not skip that hard first phrase, whoever wants to be my disciple. These days, I get the impression, and I hate to say this, but i got to be, as the kids say, i got to keep it real, right? I get the impression that most of us aren't really sure we want to be Christ's disciple. I think that's one reason, among others, that the pews aren't as full as they once were. I think most of us aren't sure we need to be his disciple. And so, for a lot of people, including a lot of people who still go to church, frankly, 
This passage, which as I just said, may be one of the most important in the entire Bible, or New Testament at least, these important words are a non-starter. I don't even know if I want to be. Thanks for the offer, God, but I'm good. I've got it right now. Step one's going pretty well. I'm pretty comfortable where I'm here, where I am right now. The bad stuff, I've gotten through that. And the really bad stuff, that happens to other people, not, not me. Whoever wants to be my disciple. And then add to that this whole business about taking up one's cross, which, by the way, is an instrument of torture and suffering and death, letting go of things that we think are essential to who we are. That's what, that's what the cross symbolizes. It's just like Buddhism and other great world religions. The secret is not being attached to things that don't really fulfill the promise that we put on them. Choosing to put others ahead of myself or my family, ahead of what's best for me and mine. Losing my life so I can find my life, it makes no sense. Losing my life in order to save it, whatever. Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. This is really a bad marketing strategy. It's going to be hard and it's going to get harder. That's, that's what the message is. And then add to that, if I may, the failure of the church itself over the last 30, 40, 50 years or more to embrace step two. In other words, the church has behaved just like an individual does. We don't want any of it. We'd rather preserve things the way they are. Circle the wagons and defend, defend, defend. Rather than to follow into the future, into the present day, and to live and speak the gospel in new ways. The tendency, friends, of the Christian church to spend almost all of our energy and resources in the last 50 years to preserving things the way they used to be rather than discovering the new thing that God wants to teach us about today is probably the number one reason why most people could care less. Couldn't care less? Couldn't care less. No wonder churches are shrinking. We just would prefer not to. One of my favorite short stories in American literature and literature all around the world that I've been able to uh, enjoy it was written in 1853 by a guy you may have heard of named Herman Melville. Of course, he wrote uh, a lot of other great books, uh, but this was a short story card called Bartleby the Scrivener. I encourage you to check it out. It's about a young man named Bartleby who was hired to be a scrivener in the mid-19th century. A scrivener was someone who copied and wrote out legal documents. Did it all by hand. And he was hired in the early part of the story by a Wall Street lawyer who needed some extra help. Business was so good. And at first, Bartleby really churned out great product, great, great work. He did a lot of stuff. But then, as time went on, he started doing less and less. Every time the narrator who was the, the office, the lawyer in the office, asked him to do something, Bartleby starts to say the same thing. He always has the same response. I would prefer not to. The boss, the narrator, is intrigued, not angry, frustrated, but not angry. He wants to help Bartleby. He wants to find out what's bothering him. He wants to know anything about him. He wants him to talk. He wants to do something to help get him past this. But every time 
it's no use. Every time he says anything or uh, proposes anything to Bartleby, the Scrivener, Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. Soon it's discovered that Bartleby, who keeps saying, I would prefer not to, is actually living at the office. He was secretly staying and then just sleeping overnight, showing up in the morning, ready for work, but only to do nothing. The narrator wants to help him, but after a while, the landlord catches on and calls the police, and Bartleby is thrown into the tombs, into, j into jail for vagrancy. The narrator, his former boss now, visits him there, tries even to bribe the prison cook to feed Bartleby to make sure he gets something to eat every day. But even then, whenever food is placed before him, Bartleby says, I would prefer not to. And he dies there in prison, this young man who just would prefer not to. And there are famous closing words to Melville's story, the last four words, ah, Bartleby, ah, humanity. Our response too often is, I would prefer not to. I'm not really sure I really want this, so I'm just going to kind of keep it at arm's length and hang around. Until step two happens, and we're forced to sometimes look beyond our own resources. But Jesus says today to his disciples and to us, if we want to be his disciples as well, that there is a third step on every person's journey of life. On the other side of struggle, heartache, unplanned devastation and change of, of script, on the other side of letting go, of uncertainty, of fear, of suffering, is the life God promises for you and for me. We know it's true because he's been there first. He didn't skip step two to get to step three. And that's how he keeps his promise. He simply invites us into his own story to be with him. Jesus takes us with him. And what we get on that third step, if we're willing to go there, and most of us aren't, most of us would prefer not to, is a peace that passeth understanding, a peace even in the midst of the storms. I'll conclude with the quote that is at the top of your bulletin this morning from Walter Brueggemann, that great Old Testament scholar who said, the entire future of Israel, whenever you read Israel in the Bible or Bible commentary or scholarship, just think us or think humanity. The entire future of Israel depends in each generation on the capacity and resolve of God to make a way out of no way. Not you, not me, not the session or the elders or the bishops or the pope or the president or anybody. The entire future depends on the resolve of God to make a way out of no way. And these stories, these ancestral narratives, Brueggemann says, attest to the power of God to create new historical possibilities and wants us to do to move into a better place, a third step of life, which is abundant life, which Jesus says is why he came in the first place. Amen.